0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome back to the MOB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MOB.com. Joined by MOB.com National Content Editor, Matt Myers, Today is Thursday, April 27th. We have to talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are shockingly good, I think. We're going to get into our three-batter minimum. We are going to discuss whether we are in on the apparent Jared Kelnick breakout. We're going to talk about how the American League East is destroying baseball in ways we have not seen in some time. We're going to talk about a brand new catcher metric. And as always, Matt and I are going to get into guys that you should know a little bit more about. We're going to get into 1980s horror movies. Trust me, it's going to be worth it. First, our main topic of the day. The Pittsburgh Pirates are good. They are 17-8. and eight. I will admit that they are playing the Dodgers right now, so they may not be 17-8 by the time you read this, but I listened to this. They are 8-2 in their last 10, and if you look at their playoff odds at Fangraphs, they have gone from a 7% odd chance in the preseason to 24%. That's right, April games do matter. They have tripled, more than tripled, their postseason odds at Fangraphs, and yet... J.B. Brewbaker out for the year with Tommy John. O'Neill Cruz played nine games before he fractured his ankle. The season didn't get off to a good start, even by Pirate standards. And yet, here we are leading an entire podcast show with Matt. Are the Pirates
0: good now? Let's talk about them a little bit before I I sound like a bit of a wet blanket. Um, although that yes, <laughs> te- teaser alert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, or spoiler alert. I guess so maybe that's a better the better phrase that the kids say these days. It's. I mean, these stories are always fun. Um, I will. You know, you mentioned O'Neill Cruz. If you had said to me a month ago, the Pirates are going to be seven. What's the record? You said seventeen and eight. Seventeen and eight. Yeah. And they're actually they are winning against the Dodgers right now as we record this. Um, I would have said, oh well, that probably means that like O'Neill Cruz is making the leap and is like you know an all star, and that's a big part of why this team is good. So the fact they're doing this with O'Neill Cruz basically being a non factor is is what's most interesting. The starting pitching has been. Not dominant, but like really good and throwing a lot of innings, which is actually a rare combination in this day and age, and it's not guys you would expect. So I think that's probably the thing that stands out most to me and I don't think is sustainable, but I guess maybe it's possible that it is.
1: I, I just heard a lot of words that basically amounted to, this is a fun story. I'm enjoying this. Um, I'm a little bit higher on them than you are because I don't I don't think you fake your way to a start like this, and I think that they've been playing Decent teams, like we talked about the Rays early on and they were playing, you know, singular level baseball teams. Uh, The Pirates have been doing a little better. They've been certainly taking it to the Dodgers (laughs) these last couple of days. They have made some interesting changes, the Pirates have. Uh, Did you know no team in baseball throws breaking balls more often than the Pittsburgh Pirates? Which is kind of funny to me because eight years ago, it was like, you come to the Pirates, you will be throwing a sinker. You will be throwing it down in the zone. That's what we do. We throw sinkers. And now they are the breaking balliest team in baseball which is a little bit about having rich hill because that's like all he does but not that um to me this kind of gets into what sort of stats you value so the pirates rotation leads the majors with 15 quality starts and you know you, you can't totally fake your way towards that that's putting your team in position to win that's great but they're doing it in kind of a weird way uh You know, the the rotation's ERA is 375, which is fine. Their ground ball rate is 26th. That's the thing that worries me. Like, they're not really striking out a ton of guys. They're not really preventing a ton of walks, and they're getting the ball in the air a lot. And I think what's happening here, maybe some kind of echoes of last year's Orioles, where it's like the bullpen's been pretty good, especially David Bednar, And to some extent, Colin Holderman, who they swiped from the Mets, or Dan Vogelback, And that's helping them kind of steal some early wins. Uh, Not to take away from what they're doing. Obviously, like, everyone expected the Pirates to lose 96 games this year, and (laughs) they're not going to do that. What I think stands out to me most about the Pirates, and this is going to be the most anti-analytical statement that I think you'll hear me say on the show, is just the vibes are good, right? Like. Andrew McCutcheon came back and it wasn't like we've seen a lot of these where he comes back and it's his last year and it's sort of sad and he's not the guy you remember and then you sort of wish it didn't happen at all because it just makes you feel bad. Andrew (laughs) McCutcheon's been great. Five homers, a 140 OPS plus. Uh, Matt, I have a question for you. When Andrew McCutcheon departed the Pirates the first time, do you remember how that happened?
0: Traded to the Giants? He
1: was. Who is he traded the Giants for?
0: Ooh, now you're really testing me.
1: Um, One of the names was Kyle Crick. That's not the name I'm looking for here.
0: I'm stumped.
1: When this- st- Brian Kingsbury Reynolds. Tr- Brian Reynolds. That's what it is. People don't remember that. Like that was such an unpopular trade. Oh my God, you're trading away McCutcheon. You're not signing him. They got Brian Reynolds back. So when I was talking about vibes, I mean, that's the other part of it too, right? They signed him for eight years. $106 million is the first $100 million contract uh, in team history, and I think a lot of people saw that and they're like, oh, that's that's not quite as heavy as I thought that that would be. Like, it's not quite huge dollars. And I think what's happening here is he's older than you think. He's already 28 and they already had him through his age 30 season. They could have just done nothing, had him through his age 30 season. So they're not really like buying a ton more of his prime. I think that's what's hurting him here. He wouldn't have reached free agency until after age 30. and We've seen how that goes. Um, but he's a really good player. He's off to another good start. And it's just, I can't remember the last time, people who are watching the pirates just felt this happy because like they have signed a player. They're not losing a player. They're playing winning baseball and they're doing it like in an interesting way. They have the most stolen bases in the game. She Bay is 10 for 11, which shocked me. And what shocked me more is he was one of those guys who got signed by the Braves like eight years ago. And then had the contract voided because of the whole shenanigans that got their GM kicked out of the game. He's in the majors now. He is stealing uh, an incredible amount of bases. And old friend Connor Joe, the only reason I didn't pick him as my guy this week is I'm pretty sure I've done him before, has the largest hard hit rate increase in baseball from 34% to 52% above Randy Rosarena. I'm with you. I don't see a lot of like, oh my God, this is the next great team. This breakout is like for real, for real. But it's hard to like look past this month because it's been it's been so beyond anyone's expectations. They even extended their manager
0: the vibes are good. You know, you've been on Connor Joe for a while, so so props to you on that. Um, the pitching, at least the starting pitching, you know, Mitch Keller has been like a quote unquote you know breakout candidate for like six straight years. He's pitching well <laughs> yeah, yeah. again. He's pitching today against the Dodgers. He has five strikeouts through two, although he's given up two runs. Um, he's twenty seven, so he's not old. Like okay, maybe this is like finally the breakout. You know, Yuan Oviedo and Rojas and Contreras—they're not that. They're in their, they're in their mid twenties too. So it's like it's possible they're onto something. As you mentioned. They lead the league in quality starts. These guys are all, like, Keller leads the league with four. Contreras and Oviedo each have three. So, like, I just don't think that that's something that, like, you can project forward. You know, guys, as the season goes on, like, I don't necessarily expect these guys to keep giving them this this level of just, like, consistent competence. But I do think that that is, like, in this day and age when teams are have to, have to rely on their bullpen so much, getting – I actually think quality starts, people mock them, like quality starts, six innings, three runs, like that's a 4-5 ERA, that's not good. Well, two things. Most quality starts are actually better than that. The average quality start has like an ERA below three. Second of which, like – that's really valuable because of what it saves your bullpen. Like it's 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 as valuable in terms of the innings as it is in the, the the runs allowed. So the fact that like they aren't so reliant on their bullpen every night so far makes a huge difference. There are some teams that only have three quality starts this year. Granted, they're the worst teams in the league, but just to give you some context, the Pirates have fifteen. The A's and Tigers each have three. So I think that like if if I did feel that that was projectable over a full season, that the the team they were going to lead the league in quality starts, I might be with you as a, hey, maybe they're a wild card contender, but I just don't see Keller and Oviedo and Contreras being able to maintain that over a full season.
1: Yeah, you got to split their rotation into three groups, I think. Like, you have the two young guys who they kind of swiped in trades. Like, Oviedo came over from the Cardinals in the uh, Jose Quintana trade, and he looks like he's pretty good. Um, Contreras is a huge arm, came over from the Yankees in the Tyone trade. So, like, I'm kind of in on young guys getting an opportunity. As you said, Mitch Keller, so he's like the second group. He's 27, um, perpetual breakout candidate. And every year it's, well, I've got a cutter, I've got a sweeper. No FIP says this, no Eerie says this. Like, we've been waiting for this forever. And then you've got the two older guys. Um, you have Rich Hill, who's 43, and Vince Velasquez, who is 31, going on 43. Because that's how long it feels like we've been talking about Vince Velasquez. I think what they've done is this. What we were going to hear from this team all summer long, aside from the Reynolds stuff, if he didn't get signed, was which contender is going to trade for David Bendar, right? Because everybody's going to want another closer or an eighth inning guy. Now that's not going to happen, right? They are going to hang around the race. I'm going to put you on the spot before we move on, Uh Does this end in the playoffs? Yes or no? Doesn't have to be the division. Does this end with them being one of the six National League playoff teams?
0: I would like to say yes because I think different teams are cool and it's good to see teams like make surges, but I don't think it will.
1: Yeah, I hate to be a bummer, but I honestly think you're right. I'm looking forward to them proving us wrong. We're going to take a break and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy,
1: We are back on the MLB.com ballpark dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, we move into our three batter minimum, where we take three of the interesting topics of the week as defined by literally Matt and I. What do we feel like talking about? I'm trying to figure out, Matt, um, if, if what I'm about to say is a New York centric point of view, if it's too much about us being New Yorkers. Is the Edwin Diaz trade like one of the most infamous trades in recent baseball history, right? Like, the Mariners had Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano, and they didn't want Cano's contract. So they basically dumped him on the Mets and paid Diaz to do it and got back Jared Kelnick. And at the time, everybody was like, oh, my God. And then Diaz was great, and Kelnick was not. And I feel like we've gone back and forth about what that trade actually means like 11 different times. Where where are we on that trade like now-ish?
0: If, if the Jared Kelnick we're seeing right now is you know some version of – the Jared Keldnick we're going to get going forward, I think we're kind of at the both teams kind of got what they wanted out of the trade. Like wild, uh, not wild. (laughs) It's, you know, which is, I mean, that's kind of the, the idea. Like when you make a trade, like it's not this, I mean, I mean, obviously you'd rather win the trade than lose the trade, but if you're happy with what you received, isn't that what ultimately matters in the end? And like, you know, at the time when it happened, the Mets were criticized because it was like, oh, you're giving up this great prospect and all you're getting is reliever and old Robinson Cano and, and you know, most of his contract. And the first year Diaz was bad. Cano was actually decent for a year and a half or so when he was healthy. And then and Diaz got amazing and Kelnick was terrible the whole time. So it looked like, oh, maybe the Mets are actually going to win this trade. And now at least the Kelnick, quote unquote, win this trade. And now Kelnick has been really good and it looks like he's discovered something and maybe he's going to be a good player four years later. And really valuable for the Mariners and like good for him and good for them. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously they'd like to have Edwin Diaz, but it's not like, they've had any problem inventing relievers in that bullpen for, for those of you who have not followed the ongoing soap opera. That is the Jared Kellinick story. He was the sixth overall pick in 2018 by the Mets was traded to the Mariners six months later and came up as a hugely regarded prospect and was an absolute catastrophe over his first two years in 2021 and 2022. He got about a season's worth of big league time, right? 147 games, 558 played appearances. He hit, and I swear these numbers are true, 168, 251, 338. That's a 66 OPS plus that is essentially unplayable. And yet they sort of committed to him as being part of their outfield, uh, you know, corner outfield setup this offseason, which I kind of looked at as a problem. And so far he's hitting 325, 376, 688, an OPS over 1,000 a 198 OPS plus, and a 97th percentile hard hit rate. And just beyond the numbers, there have been some individual plays. He hit this one ball. I I know everybody talks about the one in Wrigley that went like 482 feet. I want to say this was off Jack Flaherty, but I I can't remember for sure, where it was like a slider from a righty that was breaking in on him, a left-handed hitter, and he hits an oppo. (laughs) <laughs> for a home run and everybody's like oh that's you don't see that very often that's that's very special and I, like that was a big part of it because like for me you know we, we heard good things about him in the spring and i looked at the balls he hit the spring and i'm like yeah but they're all on fastballs and last year he hit literally 057 against breaking balls so like let's see some spin this year he's hitting 250 with a 667 slugging percentage and like i think it's too soon to say like in 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 well, I think I'm pretty close to being in. Like, this this feels real to me.
0: Obviously has natural ability. You know, he was the number six pick in the draft. He raked in the minors. And that's kind of what was interesting about it is that, like, even the last couple of years when he was sent back to AAA, he'd hit. The strikeouts were still always a little high, and that was a concern. But it was like – it wasn't like he was a complete lost cause. Like, at the at AAA, and he was still raking. And I was like, maybe he's a 4A player, but he's too young to sort of – cast aside as a 4A player and you know Ken Rosenthal did a deep dive in the Athletic this week about how he rebuilt his swing um with uh, is it the guy who's an assistant hitting coach for the Dodgers is like a, is like a private like what's the exact exact breakdown uh well so sort of right so uh this is actually a great story but Ken I
1: I he doesn't Kelnick doesn't just like miraculously wake up one day and learn how to hit, right? He, like he put a ton of work into rebuilding his career. So he went and rebuilt his swing with two guys um, Craig Wallenbrock, who is like a legendary hitting coach, worked with JD Martinez, all those guys. And Tim Laker is the guy, Matt, you were talking about, who I remember from being like a 1992 ish Expos catcher, <laughs> I think. And um, he was the Mariners hitting coach when Kelnick came up. And he left the Mariners after 2021. And now he's a minor league hitting coordinator with the Dodgers. And um, as Ken details in the story, like a lot of teams don't mind if their hitting coaches work with other players in the offseason because you kind of, you're gaining Oppo Intel basically and also showing off how great your coaches are. And, you know, so they they rebuilt his swing and he went to a sports psychologist and rebuilt his outlook and he's using a new bat. He's a hockey puck guy now, uh, hockey puck, not bat, not like an actual hockey puck. And the one thing that was like the most interesting to me from this, this story is so he's working with Tim Laker, who's a Dodgers hitting coach. And Laker texts Ken Rosenthal over the winter, and it's like, um, yeah, there's something here. And then it comes out that the Dodgers tried to trade for him <laughs> over the winter because obviously the Dodgers had a lot of outfield issues. And the Mariners are like, no, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. But isn't that a fun alternate history where the Dodgers do end up trading for Jared Kelnick this winter, and he's doing that for them? That would be, I mean, I'm a little biased here. I grew up a Dodger fan, but that would be a fun outcome instead. Instead, Mookie Betts playing shortstop. You know, everything's. Going fine. Here's the real funny thing for me, right? So Kalnick's been great, right? A part of the reason I was not super all in on the 2023 Mariners is because I didn't think he would be very good, and I didn't think AJ Pilot could be very good, and I thought they would have a lot of offensive problems, and yet Kalnick's been fantastic, Mariners are still 11-13. This is not the outcome I expected, right? Robbie Ray's hurt; is out for the year. Cole and Wong looks like a disaster on both sides of the ball. AJ Pollock hasn't hit. I, I did not expect Kelnick would be this good, and yet still the team would be underperforming. Like, that's... It has nothing to do with him, I guess. I'm just, I'm very surprised at this path we're on.
0: I'm just kind of the low man on the Mariners going into last year. And they actually, you know, they ended up winning 90 games and their run differential was basically a 91 team. It was, the, it was the exact same number of wins they had the previous year. They just didn't make the playoffs the previous year. Last year with the expanded playoffs, they made the playoffs. So the narrative was extremely different, but they didn't really do anything notable this off season. And last year, even even in a year when in which their run differential matched their record, they were extremely good in one-run games. They were 34 and 22 in one-run games last year. That was the most one-run most one run rate wins in 2022. They had 34. No other team had more than 31. Thus far this year, they're three and six in one-run games. So you could see just how like swinging their results in one-run games, which, you know, they're not random, but like, it's a little bit like batting average on balls in play. You will see wild swings from year to year. They're not it's not necessarily a predictive measure how you do in, in one-run games. So I can't say I'm surprised by that. I mean, they didn't really as I said, they didn't really do anything notable in the offseason. Like the biggest thing they did was probably addition by subtraction and trying to trade Jesse Winker, who was never a fit there. They traded him for gold Wong. Granted, Winker's been terrible for Milwaukee too, so it's not like he's like left Seattle and 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 started hitting again. But Wong's been bad. Ray's now out for the year. Like it's not it's it's not great. Like they they look I mean, the with the Rangers looking better and the Angels looking better, and obviously the Astros are good. They're in a tough spot.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like they really whiffed the last two years and not getting a good middle infielder. Simeon would have been a great fit. Trey Turner would have been a great fit. Obviously, you know, it goes both ways. Maybe the guys don't want to play in Seattle and that's fine. But um at least Luis Castillo looks great. And I selfishly am happy about this as I picked him to be my AL Cy Young winner. So score one for me. Our second topic, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, but maybe to this extent, uh, the American League East is just destroying the rest of baseball. All five teams are 500 or over as play starts today. Matt, I know you asked um, our friend and colleague Sarah Langs to look into this. What's the highest winning percentage by a division? Right now, the 2022 American League East is at 633 which would be by far the best winning percentage by a division. The previous top in this would be the 2002 American League West at 566, which I believe would be the Moneyball A's who won like 20 games in a row that year, and also Anaheim 199 and Seattle 193, and Texas was there too. There was only four teams
0: I, at the time. Exactly, and that's the point. If you look at the highest win percentage by division, three of the top four prior to this year were the AL West when it was a four-team division. Um, so the best five-team division is the 2022 AL East. Last year, in fact, <laughs> 541. This year, the 2023 the AL East is at 633, and they're just absolutely annihilating teams outside of their division. If you go back to the division era, and this is actually entering yesterday, so I didn't get the updated numbers today. So this is before the the Blue Jays waxed the White Sox, and who else was it? The uh, Yankees waxed the Twins. The AL East had a 690 winning percentage outside of its division, which would be, again, be by far the highest since divisional play began. So like they're absolutely laying waste to the rest of the league. And this new unbalanced schedule, or I should say the new balanced schedule is sort of playing into their, it's kind of almost exactly what maybe many people expected and maybe even, even more extreme than we thought. And in some ways, like one of the unintended circumstances of this is I think the Red Sox look like they're super mediocre. When actually they might, they're, they're 500 and if you go on like ESPN lists the strength of schedule based on the opposing winning percentage you've played, the Red Sox have by far the toughest schedule in baseball thus far this year. So like the Red Sox are in last place. They're 13 and 13 and they're like, oh, the Red Sox aren't very good. And obviously their starting pitching has issues. They're not like by no means a perfect team, but like contextually they're probably not bad, but it just, they just look bad in the context of the rest of the American League East.
1: I'm gonna ask you a question because I
0: think we might have different answers here. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the
1: standings for the five teams in the East. Tell me which team you think uh, the win loss record to this point surprises you the most. Tampa is 20 and five. Baltimore 16 and eight. Toronto 16 and nine. New York 14 11. Boston 13 and 13. Which one of those stands out to you the most?
0: Is going? Huh. Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm the I'm the idiot who like a month ago on the show was like, ah, the Rays. I'm not sure about them this year. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um uh, take, take <laughs> so the Rays. Take, so yeah, you might say the Rays. Um I was skeptical of the Orioles coming to this year. I will say that. I was I was skeptical of the Orioles and I'm impressed with the way they're playing. I mean, we talked about Felix Bautista last week on the show as my guy. I could have brought up Yenny or Cano, another random reliever you never heard of, as my guy this week. Like they they have they've ported over the Astros ability. The Astros the, their front office is a lot of former Astros guys, Mike Elias, um Sigma is is Mike Fast there now too? No, uh, Atlanta. Sorry, he's at Atlanta. Anyway, the Astros have a long history, had a long history of like creating relievers out of nothing, and some of that special sauce seems to have come with those guys to Baltimore. They, they they're doing it again. Last year the bullpen was good. This year it looks like it's good. So that would be my answer, Baltimore. How about you? Uh,
1: Boston. I know everything you said about the schedule, and that's fine. I I picked this team to lose like eighty seven games. I do not trust the starting pitching whatsoever. I. <laughs> it's smoke and mirrors i I, i'm sorry i just we've talked about them a lot i don't understand the roster or the fit and there's not like a breakout guy there although i guess alex verdugo has been pretty good all right our third topic is we have a new stack as catching metric. This is something we've been thinking about for quite some time, and we're pretty excited to have introduced it. Um, I wrote about it the other day, and you can find all this stuff at baseballsavant.com. And it's about catchers, which um, you know, with stolen bases this year, is a huge topic of discussion. And basically, the idea here is trying to give them credit or blame for the situations that their pitchers put them in when it comes to stolen bases. So, for example. For the entirety of baseball history, you would judge a catcher on their caught stealing rate. And for exactly that same amount of time, the base runners would be like, yeah, that's fine. I, I steal bases off the pitcher. I don't steal off the catcher. I don't care who the catcher is, which is true. So what we did uh, was to take all of this information we have, like imagine a pitch as it crosses the plate and we freeze time right there. And think about all of that you know. You know who the runner is. You know if he's very fast or very slow. You know if he got a good lead or a poor lead. You know where the pitch was, you know, if it was a pitch out or middle, middle or breaking ball in the dirt or whatever, uh, you know, the handedness of the batter and of the pitcher. And you take all these things and you say, based on this scenario, on this opportunity, how likely was it for the catcher to even be able to throw this guy out? So the ones I looked at mostly were early in the season where Corbin Carroll, baseball's fastest man, was trying to steal off of Noah Syndergaard, baseball's probably weakest pitcher at holding on runners. And poor Will Smith was just getting abused. He wasn't even getting throws off. And his caught stealing percentage looks like garbage. And yet, if you actually look at the numbers for those plays, one of them was like, uh, there was like a 6% chance he was going to throw this guy out because he just had no shot. And that's like, this is the first step of it, which I think is cool because then at some point soon, we'll roll out like a pitcher version to really show you which pitchers do a good or poor job, base runner version, maybe even a fielder version. Maybe we can quantify Javi Baez as actually being awesome at tags. Um, but if you go back to 2016, which is when this metric uh, exists. And you can do all this at Baseball Savant. The names, I think, are pretty satisfying. You'll be unsurprised to know that JT Romudo is an absolute god at this. Like, he's so good. And the more metrics we put out that he looks like he's great at, the more I'm like, sneaky Hall of Fame case for this guy at some point. That's a long way in the future. Um, The other names at the top, I think, are great. Salvador Perez. Oh, he's a poorly regarded framer, but we know he's got a cannon. He's great. Uh, Gary Sanchez is exactly the same. And then at the bottom, you've got these guys who are like, you know, good pitchers, backstops, but can Kurt Suzuki throw? Kevin Pulecki, not so much. Um, And then you can go and you can look at really uh, any uh, video for any of these plays. The other thing, too, I like is we've broken it down by uh, why. Why did he get this guy or not? Is it because he threw the ball really fast? Is it because he's super accurate? So Romulo, for example, is the king of pop time. Nobody does this faster. It's actually below average in accuracy, which I found really interesting. He throws it super fast, and sometimes he knows where it's going. So that's the newest metric. Uh, it's the first step you can find that at Baseball Savant. We're pretty excited about it.
0: You no, know, in the piece that you wrote about this, I thought that was the most, in some ways, the most interesting thing was like, you know, I think you said Jonah Haim is the most accurate, but he's not very good. Um, and so it sort of makes me think, like, maybe Marimoto has it right. Like, we're basically like, Nowadays, usually even when throws are wild into center field, the runner seldom advances because they've sold out on a slide and the center field is there to back it up. So it's like really like maybe accuracy, not that it doesn't matter, but like speed is by far the most important thing. So if you can just like be fast, you have a chance. Whereas like if you're not fast, if you're not fast, you have no chance basically. So like really you need to prioritize speed over your accuracy because that's the thing that ultimately is going to decide whether or not you even have a chance of throwing the batter out. It made me think
1: of um, some of the stuff we learned from the outfield catch probability when we broke it down that way, where like Jackie Bradley Jr. always rated pretty well, and he was very fast, but his routes were just awful. Like he never got the cleanest routes because he would just start moving and then figure out later on what direction to move in. And if you look at it the other way, the slow guys with good routes, they have good routes because they're slow and they kind of wait to see where the ball is going, and then they try to catch up. And it never really ends up working out that way. So that was kind of interesting to me, uh, sort of like what you said. Being fast is more important than being fast in the right way, which is surprising.
0: Yeah, because like you think about it, like you know, from how this differs from a throw from the outfield. Like when you're an outfielder making a throw, let's say it's a single to right field, and you see the runner coming from second to third, it will vary wildly when you scoop the ball up. When you look up, it will vary wildly based on the runner. Is he just touching third? Is he already taking two steps past third? There's like a wide variance. So in those situations, an outfielder will be able to see, like, hey. I need to make my hardest throw or I need to focus on accuracy right now. I've got him dead to rights. I just need to make sure it's accurate. When you're a catcher, it happens so quickly. You don't have enough time to be like, oh, I'm going to actually like just take my time and make this one a little more accurate and be a little bit slower. Like you you can't, you there's no time to make that decision. So like with a catcher, you just have to get it out as quickly as you can every time.
1: I, and I think the best team that illustrates that is the Red Sox, because they've obviously been getting killed because they have giving up stolen bases left, right? And so if you look at their two catchers, Connor Wong and Reese McGuire, uh, the estimated caught stealing percentage for them both, is it's similar, right? 15% for Wong and McGuire, uh, 20%. Yeah mcguire hasn't actually thrown anybody out at second base yet so he is a minus two in this whereas wong is a plus three and every red sox fan i i saw tweeting about this they were like oh yeah yeah that tracks that's exactly what we're seeing and if you look at like the pop time um, wong is 186 which is very good mcguire's 203 which doesn't sound like a huge difference it's like fractions of a second but it's it's actually a tremendous difference when it comes to this so like i've said before anytime we put out a new metric i want to learn something but i also kind of wanted to back up what I think is going to happen anyway. (laughs) Like if it's a new metric and it says, hey, JT Romino's bad at this, maybe rethink the metric. And I'm just pretty happy that didn't happen here. So more on that to come. Please check it out at BaseballSavant.com. We'll take a break and we'll be back with a pair of guys you need to know more about. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast with Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, we always like to end our show with a pair of guys that you should be talking about a little bit more. And sometimes I struggle to come up with a guy, and at the moment I've got like seven guys on my to-do list. So I'm going to start with Justin Steele. Justin Steele is an incredible name. Justin Steele sounds like he should be the lead guitar player in a Guns N' Roses tribute band. It also sounds like it could be a really cool like, adult film pseudonym, but no. Justin Steele is actually a soft-tossing lefty for the Chicago Cubs, believe it or not. He has a 119 ERA, two earned runs, in five starts. That's really good. Now, I, I, wanna, I don't usually interrupt my soliloquies here to ask you a question, Matt, but I'm going to anyway. If you'd asked me yesterday, hey, when did Justin Steele get into the Cubs organization, I would have said, I don't know, drafted in 2018 or whatever. Do you know how long he's been there without looking? Do you have any idea? No idea. He was drafted in the same draft they drafted Kyle Schwarber in. <laughs> he was drafted in the fifth round in 2014. He was drafted a one round uh, before they took Dylan Cease. This is the Brady Aiken draft. That's how long ago Justin Steele has been in the Cubs farm system, and we're only really just talking about him now as having a breakout. Sometimes it takes longer for these guys. Now, in his case... Um, you know, got drafted at 14, low minors in 15, 16. Tommy John surgery, not surprisingly. So that wiped out much of his 17 and his 18. Uh, struggled badly coming back in 2019, a 559 ERA that year in double A, And of course, there's no minor league season in 2020. And now we're like, we've already fast forwarded to 2021 where he gets to the majors. And he was pretty decent the last two years. A 353 ERA in 176 games. The thing about him that stands out to me uh, aside from the fact that a, a man named Justin Steele should throw 99, and he does not. He throws only two pitches. He throws a, a fastball 60% of the time and a slider 35% of the time. And the fastball is only at 92. And you're thinking, how on earth is he doing this? It's kind of a freakish fastball. it's It's really weird. Uh, most fastballs aren't necessarily straight as an arrow they have like a little bit of horizontal break he has one inch of break that is eight (laughs) inches below average uh and the athletic quoted pitching coach Tommy is saying uh, his steals is as unique as it gets the data won't tell the whole story because each pitch has a different intent Meaning the numbers on the pitch aren't consistent and I think that's exactly right I think is he throwing a four seam fastball yes but I think he's throwing like three or four different versions of it that do slightly different things based on what he's trying to do. You know, we talk about some guys are pitchers and some guys are throwers. This guy is a pitcher. Like, if you're throwing 92 with unimpressive movement and you're getting outs like this, you know exactly what you're doing. Like, that—that that is cool to me. And the slider, uh, he didn't even learn it until 2020. And then, now that is his secondary pitch. The Cubs are off to, like, a pretty decent start. They have the fourth-best starting pitching ERA, even though Jameis' tie is hurt. And Justin Steele, somewhat surprisingly, uh, has been one of their best pitchers. I think that's cool. I think his whole story is cool. Not as cool as the 80s slasher uh, film we're about to get into with your guy, but uh, I got to say Justin Steele a bunch, so I'm happy with my guy.
0: Uh, 2014 draft, Justin Steele, wow, I had... I had no idea. I, I you're, I'm, you, I'm with you. I would have said like 2018, sure. Um, it is really remarkable sometimes how how often guys just kind of kick around and how long it takes before they uh, get their shot and and, and makes and make something of it. Um, my guy also kind of falls in that category. I guess it's kind of a general theme. For this this bit in general, um, my guy is a Braves outfielder um, because you know what the Braves really need is another productive hitter in the outfield, and that is Sam Hilliard. Sam Hilliard, who you might remember as a longtime Rockies prospect, who was kind of a fringe guy who put up great—not a fringe guy, but like a, a second tier prospect who like always put up great numbers in the minors because like a lot of the Rocky affiliates are at high altitude, so it's always hard to tell. How good how good their their prospects are just like it's often hard to tell how good their major league hitters are. Um, in fact, in 2019, between AAA and the majors, Sam Hilliard hit 42 home runs. Um, of course, in the majors, he never he never was able to to take off with with Colorado. He slugged 200 for Colorado last year in 200 plate appearances. 200. How do you do that while playing for the Rockies last November in a trade that no one noticed? He was traded by the Rockies to the Braves for a pitcher named Dylan Spain. Um, no, no, hold on. I definitely noticed this.
1: I definitely. I was so excited about this guy. FanGraphs wrote two pieces about it. <laughs> Everybody wants the next guy who's not a Rocky anymore. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Fine, I take it back. I did. I. Did, I'll admit. I did not. I did not notice this. Um, and of course, now Sam Hilliard is raking, hitting 327, hundred, five ninety two with a 56% hard hit rate. Notably, and this started when he was with the Rockies, his launch angle has gone up slowly in each of the last five years, and now he's really elevating um yes he has a 38 percent k rate and he's mostly a platoon player and he's 29 years old but he's always had crazy tools he's 93rd percentile sprint speed he's been playing center field for them and actually what's interesting is that when michael harris the second comes back from the il which could be any day now you know hilliard can easily slot into to to play left field and platoon probably with Kevin Pillar. And on days when he's playing with Harrison Center and Acuna and Wright, that is an incredible defensive outfield. This also could portend the end of Marcelo Zuna's Braves career because it's hard to imagine they would – let Hilliard go because I'm guessing he would have to go through – he'd have to go through waivers and easily get 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 swiped um, when Ozunia is – hasn't hit in three years and obviously has not has not um, done much uh, to uh, earn any goodwill with uh, some of his off, off-field transgressions. So um, Sam Hilliard, I guess, as Fran Grass predicted, already being the, the, the next former Rocky to take off somewhere else.
1: Wait a minute. I I can't tease the horror movie and then you don't talk about the horror movie. <laughs> well, yes. I was going to get there. I was going to let you chime <laughs> in with your thoughts. <laughs> I will chime in. Here's, here are some numbers. Uh, he has a 500 batting average on balls in play, which is how you have like a 40% strikeout, uh, strikeout rate and you still succeed. I'm, I'm with you because I love the skills. Like, hard hit is great, even with Colorado. He's fast. All you need to do is just make the slightest bit more contact and... You know, leaving altitude has generally helped some of these guys because you don't have, like, these different situations home and road. I don't know if he's going to get there because it's a lot of strikeouts, but the skills are real.
0: I mean, I think, uh, I'm. you know, to be clear, I think that he's a he's a platoon player going forward, but, like, a left-handed hitter, so the, the strongest out of a platoon, who also has speed and can play good outfield defense, is, like, a pretty—is a pretty useful, you know, third-slash-fourth outfielder. And then, yes, of course, there's the other stuff. So when I first started researching Sam Hilliard— I always like to find little bio stuff about these guys, and my first piece of trivia was like, oh, he started his career at Navarro College, which some of you listeners may know if you've ever watched the Netflix show Cheer, that is the... Junior college in Texas. That is the basis of the show Cheer, which is highly entertaining. But then there's more. Sam Hilliard's mom was Miss Texas in 1984 and the fourth runner-up in the Miss America pageant. Her name is Tamara Hext. And then four years later, she starred in a horror film called Through the Fire, which has a fantastic Wikipedia page. Um, here, here's here. I'll read you some choice bits from the Wikipedia page. Th- formed in Fort Worth, Texas in 1986, 1986, through the fire, had a limited screening there in late 1988. It was not distributed in the United States until 1997 when it was released on VHS under the alternative title The Gates of Hell Part Two: Dead Awakening, falsely suggesting the film to be a sequel of City of the Living Dead, a film by <laughs> Lucio <laughs> Fulci that was released in North America under the title The Gates <laughs> of Hell. And then in the, re- in the critical response section... Michael Price of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram wrote that while the film's special effects fail the story early on, they rally toward the end in a rampage sequence that will linger in memory long after moments of ineptitude have been forgotten. (laughs) Uh, I'm reading a page here. Genre, horror slash
1: sects, S-E-C-T-S, extremist cults, synopsis. Young woman asks a policeman to help find her missing sister. They find a medallion sought after by some worshippers of the demon Moloch. A beast that may be invoked and wreaks havoc, but can only be stopped with the amulet. I, I got to say, um, we need to find this movie. We need to screen it at the office for everybody. And we need to do one of those live like movie podcasts about like, what did we just watch? And it's that. I, I swear we're still talking about Sam Hilliard in some sort of way. Um, but now that you've brought up this movie, like I have to find it and watch it because it's one of those. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be great. Do you own it? Did you already get the DVD? Not yet. Not yet. All right, well, we'll work on that for next week. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.